Let us pray before we begin. Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning that you have called us to be your people, though unworthy, undeserving. By your grace and great mercy, you came down from heaven that you might raise us up with you, that we would have new life, forgiveness of sin, the greatest gift that we could possibly imagine is all by, received by faith from you. Bless this time as we study your word and look into it. Change us. Let it be implanted within us that we would live lives that are more resembling of you, Lord Jesus. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've been talking about Christmas from the beginning through this series of Advent messages. And I kicked it off from Genesis chapter 3, talked about the story of the offspring and that promise that's given in Genesis, right in chapter 3, verse 15, of the Savior that's to come, to crush the serpent's head. And then Pastor Jay came and gave us a message from Genesis chapter 22, um, talking about what the coming Savior would do, that He would be that substitute for us. In that narrative of Abraham and his son Isaac and offering up for us uh, Jesus, where Abraham did not have to offer up Isaac. And then last week, that wonderful passage from Isaiah, where we learn of um, him, Jesus, the child that is to be born to us, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We continue this journey from with Christmas from the beginning with this passage from Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets and probably not very well known other than verse 2 in this fifth chapter. It's very well known and most evangelical churches bring it out, dust it off each and every Christmas and read that you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. And so, understanding Micah can be pretty difficult. That's probably why not many people look into it. And so, I'm going to give you just a little bit to try to put this whole passage into to context this morning. When I was a boy uh, raised in Northern California, I was born in Stockton, and it's about midway between San Francisco to the west and Lake Tahoe to the east. And if I would look to the east when I was a boy, I would see the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And from a distance, it looks like it's one linear line of mountains. The only difference between them is just the peaks. Some are tall, some are short. But if you left my house and you were driving in a car and you started to go up toward the mountains, you enter into the foothills first. Little short ones that you never see from a distance. And then you start winding your way through and you see these big mountains and they're not in a linear line. There's a lot of distance between them. Big chasms of space, miles in some cases. They're not all together. Why do I tell you that story? Prophecy in the Bible is layered. It's like those mountains. They may look from a distance to be all linear, but they're not. And so Micah, as with other prophets, when they speak prophecy, they're layered. They can represent different periods of time. They can represent the present time. 
the immediate future, the distant future, or the consummation when Christ comes again. So you have at least four different viewpoints that you can have when you read prophecy. And it becomes very difficult if you pick up Micah and you start to read through Micah, you're going to go, what? But you need to begin to ask questions. Well, what is he trying to say here? Who is he speaking about? When is this happening? Does it tie in with Scripture elsewhere? You start looking at all those things. And so, just to give you the briefness of Micah. Micah is a prophet. He is a contemporary of Isaiah. He's a contemporary of Hosea. And so he's writing during a period of time where Assyria has already taken the northern kingdom. They did that in 722 B.C. And now they're threatening Judah. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. And so they're in trouble. And so Micah says, here's why you're in trouble, because you're in sin. And so he puts forth this prophecy, and he puts it in three parts. So chapters 1 and 2 is an indictment and a coming judgment against both Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms that are split. Chapters 3 through 5 are another oracle that is given, but it's the promise of salvation. And then 6 and 7 take up this idea of indictment and judgment, but then it concludes with another oracle of promise. And so that's, that's just kind of an overview of Micah. So as we get into this passage, I want to talk to you about four things. The need for a shepherd king, the mystery of the shepherd king, what the shepherd king will do, the work of the shepherd king, and then the people of the shepherd king. So those are the four points that we'll try to get through this morning as we look at this passage. And so you have in verse 1 of this passage, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. You need to be asking those questions right now. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? As I said, during this period of time, Judah the southern kingdom, as was Israel, the northern kingdom, is in sin. They have been prosperous for a long time. Hezekiah is probably the king at this point in time. And so, like most people, when things are going good, they need God less and less. I mean, think about present-day reality. Think about all the stuff that's going on in the world. Every age looks at their period of time and go, man, we, things are bad everywhere. I mean, we have issues with gender identity. We have issues with homosexuality. We have issues with gay marriage. You name it. We've got all these problems going on. Conflicts. War in Ukraine. Can't possibly be worse, can it? And yet we live in a nation that is so prosperous, you can't imagine. If you look at just income 
that people make throughout the world. And then look at income of people here in the United States. It's a huge disparity. I'm not saying that's bad at all. We're very blessed. And so because of that, the church is blessed. But when we get in this comfort, we don't rely on God. And so that's what Judah had done. They had completely vacated a relationship with God. If you went through all of Micah, Judah, as well as Israel, the northern tribe, had broken all ten commandments. Every single one. From our point of view, we read Micah and we go, oh, look at them. They are so bad. I'd never do that. Oh, yeah, you would. And yeah, you do. You should have no other gods before me. You know, I don't do that. I don't have little things made out of wood or metal or something. I don't bow down to them. But you will definitely be looking at your watch, you know, about 10 till noon today because the Cowboys play at noon. To some people, that's an idol. To some people, greenbacks, the dollar, that's your idol. That's what you live for. That's what you work for. You think the more that you have of that, the more secure you are, the better off you are, the more peace that you're going to have. The people in Micah's time took advantage of others. They coveted. They stole property. They would finagle. They would take the weights for trade and make it in their favor. Instead of buying a pound of something, they skewed it to where you only got 14 ounces. They kind of skimmed off the top, so to speak. People didn't get what they need. They abused others to get what they want. We do that today, climbing up the corporate ladder. We'll stab another person in the back to get a promotion. There was a great need. Prosperity had gotten in the way. Their eyes were taken off of God. And so Micah starts this up and says, there's a reason why a foreign power is at your doorstep. God's trying to get your attention. And sarcastically, Micah says that this siege that is upon you, that has come upon you, muster your troops. See what you can do on your own. Sennacherib was one of the most powerful people at this period of time. Israel thought under Hezekiah that they could stand. And there was an instance where they did. But the point here is that you're leaning on your own ability. You're trusting in yourself, and that's foolishness. This siege is a warning calling you to repentance. And he closes with this thought of being slapped on the cheek. That's an insult. To be slapped on the cheek. It's a humiliation. God will bring His people to humiliation if they forsake Him. So this need is with those who don't know Christ, but it's also a need for those who do because we can so easily fall away. We need the shepherd king. We need shepherding. We need guidance. We need direction. 
So a shepherd gathers his people, takes care of them, feeds them, looks out for them, protects them, preserves them. That's what the shepherd does. The king rules and reigns over them, protects them from their enemies, both internal and external. That's our need for the shepherd king. But there's also a mystery to the shepherd king that begins in verse 2. O Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. But from you will come a ruler. It's interesting that Micah puts forth this dual name for Bethlehem. Bethlehem and Ephratah. Two names. The reason he does, according to commentators, is this. There was actually two Bethlehems in Israel. There was one in Zebulun, and there was one in Judah. And the reason two words are used to describe this town, Bethlehem and Ephratah, is the first is the town's name, the second is the district that it's in. In Joshua chapter 15, Joshua is parsing out the land for Judah. He names 115 towns. You know what he doesn't name? Bethlehem. It was so small, it was insignificant. That word for clan means a thousand. Every town was supposed to be big enough to gather a thousand men to be part of the army of Israel. Bethlehem, Ephratah, does not have a thousand men. It's tiny. It's insignificant. Listen, this is like today going to a small town that doesn't even have a signal light. Doesn't have a police department. It, it, it doesn't have any kind of government, mayor. It's without everything. Doesn't have a radio station. Doesn't have a newspaper. It's nothing. I used to work with a man years ago at Hager Apparel. And his name escapes me at the moment, but he lived in Salina. No offense to the Parmars and everybody else, the Basils that live up in Salina. But that's where he lived. Now this is, I'm going to date myself. I worked for Hager from 1988 to 1992, so that's a long time ago. Corbett Howard. So Corbett Howard became the mayor of Salina at one point in time. And he came in the office one day and he was so proud. He was like going to burst buttons okay, because Salina had a signal light. <laughs> he had got that passed through city council. So once upon a time, Salina was insignificant, not so much anymore. So this little insignificant place that couldn't muster up enough troops to join the army, didn't have any political power, no military power, nothing, out of that place would come a ruler. God doesn't work the way that we think He works. He uses the lowly. He uses the insignificant all the time. Remember Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Not many noble. Not many wealthy. Come to Christ. So Bethlehem is going to be this place. Now it's not like Bethlehem didn't have a history. It had a great history. It just wasn't Jerusalem. The big city, the capital, 
where the temple was, all of that. Bethlehem's out in the country, little rural village township. The mystery is that he would use Bethlehem, but the people of Judah should have known. People of Israel should have known. That's where the ruler's going to come forth. It has a rich, rich history. Genesis 35. Jacob, Rachel, his wife, they're traveling. They're going through Ephrata. Rachel's pregnant. Her nurse sees her go into labor and tries to comfort her. She sees she's having a hard time and says, oh, don't worry, you're going to have another son. And she does, but in the birth, she dies. Where are they, Ephrathah? Where Bethlehem would be? Rachel says, name him Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni. Son of my sorrow. Benjamin says, no. I mean, uh, Jacob says, no, name him Benjamin. Son of my right hand. Which becomes very prophetic. Mary could say the same thing about Jesus. He is my Ben-Oni. Son of my sorrow. She knew from the beginning that he would be pierced. But God the Father says, no, he's my Benjamin. Son of my right hand. That's the mystery. That God the Son would come from heaven and take on flesh and dwell among us. He who was infinitely significant would become insignificant. No one would be there at his birth. There was no room anywhere, no room in the inn. He's born in a manger. You ever think about the why? Joseph's from Bethlehem. Wouldn't you think he'd stay with family members? Do a little couch surfing? Nope. He wasn't. No room at the inn. I was reading Richard Phillips this week. He believes this. He believes that the reason, one of the reasons Jesus was born in the manger is said that no one could get credit. No one can get glory. Family members couldn't say, oh yeah, that Jesus, he was at my house when he was born. The innkeeper couldn't put forth leaflets and pamphlets. Jesus was born here. Come and stay where Jesus was born. He was born in a manger with animals. It's a mystery. It says that this one, this shepherd king, would come from Bethlehem Ephratah. We learn from Ruth that Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephrathah means fruitful. So you get this combination of where Jesus is from. He is from the house of bread, from the place that's fruitful. That would be so significant in his life, in his ministry. He would be the bread of life. His body would be broken for us that we remember each and every Lord's Day. He would be fruitful. Fruitful in the sense that his shed blood for us would wash away sin. And we see that fruitfulness in the cup each and every Sunday that we partake. Fruitful to make a people for himself, as many as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. 
The shepherd king is indeed a mystery. Who sent Jesus? Who sent Jesus? You need to contemplate that when you're thinking about where He's coming from. He comes from Bethlehem, yes, but He also comes from via heaven. The Father sent the Son. So when we think about Jesus, this little passage here in Micah, God wants us to understand that it is about Jesus being the Savior of the world, but it is not without God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. God sends Him forth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We worship the triune God. Yes, Jesus is our Savior, as we said in our affirmation of faith, the only mediator between God and man. But He comes forth from God to be a ruler of, evil, uh, of Israel. And it says that His coming forth was from old, from ancient days. That's what I started to mention just a moment ago. He comes through Bethlehem via heaven. This idea of being from of old and ancient of days is a double entendre here. Come from old, He is the line of Adam. Promise in Genesis 3.15. He's through Abraham. The promise of an offspring, a seed that would come that Paul says in Galatians 3.16, that seed is Christ. He is of the line of David. We studied in Ruth. Remember? Naomi goes away, comes back empty. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons, but Ruth comes to her and clings to her and says, your God will be my God, your people my people. And God uses Ruth through Boaz to perpetuate that line that would be given to us, David the king, a type of who Christ would be. So he's from of old, from the very beginning, all the way up through this period of time, Jesus was from old. The promises of God are yes and amen. But he's also from the ancient days. The NASB, I think, gets it right in that it interprets this from all eternity. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus chose us. God chose us in Christ. He was there that whole time. And so it is a mystery that He would come and do this. The mystery continues when you ask the question, well, when does He come? That's what these people during this period of time would have said. When will He come? Verse 3 says that He will not come until she who is in labor has given birth and the rest of His brothers shall return to the people of Israel. More layers here. You get another promise of the virgin birth that comes forth here. That's one layer. The promise of a return that comes, those from exile... These people will come together, but it speaks much more bigger than that. They're going to go through a period of time that will still be trying for him, for them. It'll be hard like labor, painful, suffering, agony. And yet there will be a reward 
that comes through that birth. It is quite a mystery. The shepherd king would come from Bethlehem, from the Father, for a people who are suffering great need. Well, what will he do? What is the work of the shepherd king that begins in verse 4? It says that the shepherd will stand. He will stand. He will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. And he will be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Again, this promise is looking far forward. Some 700 years will go by until Christ is born in the manger and is born a king, born a shepherd for his people. And you have to ask the question, how will the people have peace? How will the people dwell secure? Micah addresses that back in chapter 4. It's one of the beginning prophecies about the shepherd king. It talks about the coming kingdom. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 4, look at verses 1 and 2, or it may be still open on that page. It says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. This is a picture of the crucifixion the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. That caught people by surprise when he said that. He said that in John 2.19. Then in John 12.32 he says, and I, even when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's when it comes. That's when people come from all the ends of the earth. They come to Jesus and He will be their shepherd. A shepherd that knows them by name according to John chapter 10. A shepherd that lays down His life for His sheep. Sheep that will follow a shepherd. A shepherd that will take care of them. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures beside still waters. That's peace. Jesus will do this through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. He will be their peace. Well, what about the pe- people of the shepherd? That picks up in 5 and 6. You read that passage and it becomes very, very confusing. Micah is looking at the Assyrians again. He says, When they come to, into our land and tread in our places, then he will raise against them seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances 
and he shall deliver us from the Assyrians. He will deliver us. Note that he, not the shepherds. What is he talking about? Again, the layers that Micah will do, he'll use a present reality to try to explain something that's going to happen sometime in the future. In this passage, he's actually talking about the people of the shepherd king, Christ. He's talking about the church. He's talking about how it will withstand the wiles of the earth. And he's putting it in terms that these people would understand. You're going to be up against Assyria. You're going to be up against the Babylonians. But he will deliver you. The shepherd king that is promised to come, he will deliver you. He will do battle for you. And so this idea is that when the church comes, those who are equipped of the people of God to be shepherds, to be the people of the church, the eight princes. This idea of seven is the number of completions. Elders will be what the church needs to lead people. And that people are on top of that. That's why there's an eight But the church under the shepherd king will go forth and conquer, not in a military way, but in a spiritual way. Their sword will be the word of truth. Their sword will be the gospel. It will pierce hearts and change lives because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have the need for the shepherd king. We have the mystery of the shepherd king. We have the work of the shepherd king and the people of the shepherd king. What do you want for Christmas this year? You want something shiny and new? You want something significant, expensive? You want something special, a one of a kind gift? You want some new technology? Notice I use the word want, 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 want. I was looking at our Christmas tree earlier this week. There's no presents under it right now. <laughs> some are yet to be wrapped. And as I was gazing at that tree and thinking of little kids that want to go to the mall and see Santa Claus and so desperately want to say what they want for Christmas seeing no gifts, I'm thinking, what do we need this Christmas? What do we need? We don't need anything shiny. We don't need anything significant or expensive. We need Jesus. Something from of old. Something ancient. Something that is far more than significant. He is our all in all. He's not just expensive. He's of infinite worth and infinite value. More than we could ever want. And He changes our lives. He makes us human again. He redeems us through and through so that we might live for him. Micah closes his prophecy in chapter 7 verse 18. 
This is the gift that we have received if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. This is the gift that should motivate you to live for Him. Micah says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. There's the need. And it's met. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You, O God, will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. And you have sworn to our fathers as you have sworn to our fathers from the day of old. There's the gift. That's what you need for Christmas. The shepherd king so that you might have all that you need and then use that and share that with others that they may have the greatest gift ever known to man. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son into this world to be for us our shepherd king that we may know him, that we may live for him, do our work within us, Lord, that we might have the passion and the desire to take this greatest gift that's made our greatest need and share it with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.